0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of General Stanley McChrystal.
1: I felt like I'd failed. I wasn't just out of the Army. I was now on the ticker tape of the TV every two minutes, and some places are calling Disgrace General so I decided to go quiet and just focus myself on being the kind of leader that I think I am and letting people who might doubt me because of the article look at my conduct after that and judge me on that.
0: How Stan McChrystal learned to be a better leader by understanding how to grow from failure.
2: Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Between the end
0: of the Vietnam War and September 11, 2001, there were only a handful of U.S. military officers who became somewhat well-known. There was General Norman Schwarzkopf, commander of the First Gulf War. General Colin Powell, and even General Wesley Clark, who commanded NATO forces in the Balkans. But after 9-11, a whole new generation of military leaders became household names. Tommy Franks, David Petraeus, George Casey, Ray Odierno, and of course, Stan McChrystal. By the time he took over as overall commander of coalition forces in Afghanistan in 2009, McChrystal had already become somewhat legendary among army officers. He led the Joint Special Operations Command that waged a shadow war against al-Qaeda and other insurgents in Iraq and Afghanistan. And very often, McChrystal himself would go out on patrols and missions with the young soldiers under his command. But in 2010, an article in Rolling Stone magazine published disparaging quotes by the general and his staff about members of the Obama administration That led to McChrystal's resignation and a period of deep contemplation about failure and what it means to be a leader. Since then, he's written books and launched a consulting firm that focuses on crisis management and leadership. Stan McChrystal's journey began as a young man who grew up in a military family. His father and grandfather had been army officers, and Stan McChrystal knew exactly what he wanted to be from a very young age.
1: I always wanted to be a soldier. In fact, I don't think I ever really considered anything else. Huh. From the, the earliest age, I wanted to be my father. He was my hero. Hmm. And to do that, I wanted to follow the best route. He had gone to West Point. And so that, I just automatically thought, well, that's what I'd like to do. What was it about your dad that you particularly admired, that you remember about him? That, I mean, you say he was your hero. What, what made him that? Well, it was interesting. I knew he was a good soldier. I'd never seen him soldier, but I I knew from his record. Uh, He was very highly decorated, had four silver stars in combat. But when you were with my father, if you ever saw the old movie, The Great Santini, Mm -hmm. about a braggadocious officer, my father was the other end of the scale. Mm -hmm. He was always kind to everybody. I never remember a moment when we would be in a store or anywhere where he didn't treat the people that he was dealing with, with courtesy and kindness. And I i tell people this sometimes. I never once saw my father or mother do anything wrong. And what I mean by that is they never got incorrect change and then said, oh, look how clever I am. They never took a parking space and said, hey, this isn't authorized, but we'll do this. It, it, it couldn't help but make you admire them. So you went off
0: to... Um you followed in your father's footsteps. Went to West Point, um, and you got there at a time—nineteen seventy-two, I think. You entered West Point, probably assuming that you would graduate and you would be shipped off to Vietnam.
1: I did, um, because I had it had been going for almost a decade at that point, and It was just my assumption. My father and brother had both served there, and uh, so I assumed that I would as well. Hmm.
0: If I were, if I were, if I had a crystal, if I had a time machine, right, and I went back to West Point in the mid seventies. And I looked at uh, Stan McChrystal, and I looked out at, at his classmates. Um, are you the one I would have put my money on to become a
1: four-star general? Uh, I don't think so, <laughs> uh, for a couple reasons. One, I wasn't at the top of my class academically. Um, I was good in history and English, but this, that was an engineering school. We're <laughs> heavy mm-hmm. in math. And so that was a bad fit. And then I had disciplinary problems, uh, particularly for my first two years there. I got in a tremendous amount of trouble, what they call slugs, which were big disciplinary uh, actions against you. And I was what they call a century man. I walked 127 hours on the area. And there's only a handful of those guys in each class. So I was sort of- wow. A reprobate. The area is like the quad. It's exactly. Yeah.
0: It. I read that um your, your current wife and only wife, who was your girlfriend at the time, used to visit you and she would just sit in the library because you were you had to you you had you were being disciplined on the weekends
1: when she would come visit. She's a saint. Yesterday <laughs> we had our forty-third wedding uh, anniversary. And we joked about that. She would come up to see me and you'd have to walk your area hours on Saturday afternoon. And I think we finished at five o'clock. And so a friend of mine would take her to the library, and they would sit there, and they'd even walk by the the area and sort of look through the sally port, and they could see me doing my uh, my punishment tours. What were you doing? Why did you get in so much trouble? Well, I wasn't doing what I should have. Uh, the first time, a uh, classmate and I were accused of disrespect to an upperclassman, and uh, what had happened, he had he'd caught us doing something, and then he had walked away and we turned each other and started laughing. And he had done this circle around and come behind us and caught us laughing. And so we got, we got slugged for that. And then I got caught uh, drinking a couple of times where I had liquor slugg- smuggled in and we had our little impromptu party. And then one time with three of my friends, we went to the Westport Museum and we checked real weapons out of the museum. you were allowed to do that. And they were real submachine guns. And we started playing in the barracks with them as, as we were sophomores at the time would do. And then we decided to go outside our barracks and raid this upper-class social area called Grand Hall. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> oh, my God. So
0: great judgment there as an, under, as an undergraduate. <laughs>
1: great is one word. They didn't use that. <laughs>
0: It, it sound, so it sort of sounds like, I mean, you went into the military because you, you went to the army because your dad was a, an army guy, but you got to West Point and you weren't, you know, I mean, a lot of people say that uh, who, who went to West Point with like David Petraeus, they said th- there was no question he was going to become a, you know, a, a senior officer. That, that that's, He was like yeah. that at, at West Point. Um, but but you went into this as a career. Did you think that this was going to be your career?
1: I, I did. And it's it's interesting because I went to West Point as a means to an end. You know, some people consider West Point sort of the epitome of their life. They go there in this f- four great years. I considered it four years I would endure because my goal was to be an army officer. Hmm. I thought I was going to go fight in Vietnam and my goal was to be a young army officer in Vietnam. And West Point was something I had to get through. And I, I didn't take it as serious as I as I should have. I mean, in retrospect, I blew some opportunities there.
0: Was it your ambition to achieve a high rank like your dad?
1: No. And it's not that I was against it. It's, I never thought about it. And I don't think most of my classmates did either. You went there and my goal was first to be an infantry platoon leader, a lieutenant. And then after I was there for a while, my goal was to be a company commander. Um, you never thought about being a general because they were old; they were okay. irrelevant, so that that wasn't a goal because nobody wants to be old and irrelevant
0: you um you You eventually went into the special forces i did and um and that that was not a traditional from what i understand it was not a traditional kind of path certainly to to kind of major leadership in the army it It was more sort of a at the time kind of a backwater? Is that right?
1: Well, that's right. Um, every big war from World War II on, America would build up special, the equivalent of special forces, elite forces during the war and then disband them at the end of it because there's a an antibody-like rejection of elitism in the U.S. military. I was fascinated by special forces when I was younger and when the B- Vietnam War was going. My father was not. He was a regular infantryman, but I was fascinated by the mission, and I thought when I was at West Point that that would be an interesting thing to do. I remember my battalion commander was adamantly opposed to it. He said it'd ruin my career. And Hmm. one of the officers in the battalion said, so you've decided to go to speckled feces. (laughs) And the the reality was Special Forces was not in good shape when I got there Hmm. in late 78. It was a shadow of what it had been in Vietnam. But the the idea and the mission still interested me. Why? Well, I just thought that small groups of highly trained people, particularly working with host nation or or local indigenous personnel, was something that was going to be needed in the future. You know, I had done a lot of reading and study about the partisan wars during, or fights during World War II. Uh, Of course, the French in Indochina and then Algeria. And then the Americans in Vietnam. And I was convinced that wars of liberation were likely to 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 happen even more in the future.
0: Yeah. So let's let's sort of dive into your your career you know in the Army because there is a the, the thing that the Army does so well is there's a clear path, right? There's a clear trajectory. You know what's gonna come next if you fulfill X obligations and you serve you know, and you check certain boxes, and you are good at what you do. You know you're going to advance, and and from an early age, officers, um, not just officers, even non commissioned officers, uh, are given resp- even low ranking, low ranking folks are given a great deal of responsibility. Right? They're given they're they're essentially forced to learn how to become leaders from the very beginning. Right?
1: That's that's correct.
0: And so was it – what did you – and when you kind of reflect on that, you know, the, the, the trajectory of your career as you kind of rose in the ranks, what did you kind of discover? I mean what, what, what is it that the army does better and, and, and knows how to do better than the civilian world doesn't, doesn't know?
1: Yeah. I think first, the Army understands it has to be a big training and leadership factory because everybody who enters the Army, by definition, is not already a soldier. And so they start from the beginning. Mm. As a as a young uh, soldier, you're right, very junior. And in, in a couple of years, you are a leader, a team leader, and then a squad leader. And so they talk about leadership. They make leadership the core of what you're thinking about. As a young lieutenant, I think as most young lieutenants, my first assignment was as a platoon leader. And so I was very anxious to prove my competence in in basic warfare techniques. And you do that pretty quickly, but then you find that the leadership aspect is what is very, very interesting Mm. and very challenging. And you also start to get a sense whether you're good at it and whether you like it. And so- I started to find after really just a couple of years in the army that I was reasonably good at it, but I also found that I very much liked it. I found it very rewarding.
0: You know, um, there's a there's a, a quote of yours that I read in, in an article about you and, and you say, you know, even well into my career in the army, I was still figuring out what kind of leader I wanted to be. For many years – I found myself bouncing between competing models of a hard-bitten taskmaster and a nurturing father figure, sometimes alternating within a relatively short time span. How would you have described yourself as a leader now when you look
1: back? Yeah, that's, that's great because that quote is what I still how assess my uh, career. I started as sort of a, a blank sheet of paper as a leader, and I went and I tried what worked, And then about the time I was a captain and, you know, I'd had between six and 10 years of service, I became very centralized. I became a micromanager because I found a company is about 100 to 150 people Mm. that I could micromanage that. And it was small enough to get my arms around and I could centrally control that very, very effectively. And so you get reinforced that it's going well. Yeah. And then you think you're doing great. You think you're a great leader. That's right, exactly. And then when I went to the Rangers as a captain, I had commanded a mechanized infantry company of less elite soldiers, good people, but less elite. Then I went to the Rangers, which was an elite light infantry unit, and I became a company commander there. And the dynamic was very different. In that environment, the non-commissioned officers, even the very junior soldiers, wouldn't tolerate you micromanaging them. Hmm because they were very competent and they had a very high level of discipline so if you tried to do the kind of very centralized control you didn't you didn't get much performance out of them you got resentment was that frustrating for
0: you because you, that was the, that was your playbook
1: it, it was initially. In fact, I actually had a couple people get in my face, my subordinates, saying, that's not how we do it here. Hmm. And I, I was new to the Rangers, so I was trying to prove myself and my competence. And I started letting go, and I started being much more decentralized. And of course, what I found is we got far better outcome. And I could spend my time thinking about things that the company commander ought to be thinking about while they do the jobs that are that they are very, very good at. And that was probably the time I started shifting my style pretty significantly. How old were you? I was uh, 10 years service, so I would have been about 31. Mm. What about ego? I mean,
0: do you just, if you were to sort of uh, do a a stand on a balcony and look at this guy, Stan McChrystal, at that time, um, did he have a, a healthy ego or did he keep his ego in check? Was he was he did he start to constantly evaluate himself and consider whether he was doing what he did well or or was he the kind of guy who, who sort of like you know i'm 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 good at what i do i'm i'm because he was getting praised from you know yeah
1: from different folks it's a fair question i think a little bit of both i was getting praise from people but i also have enough insecurities that drive me, hmm. you know. I'm I'm a kind of person that is never sure if I'm really doing a good job, and so I question myself a lot. I always sort of envied people who seem to be completely self confident, and I I just never was. Yeah,
0: yeah me too. Right. Yeah. How, how how do they have that? Is that you, is that a real thing, or is it? Are they just better? At, because I, some part of me wonders whether we're all we're all kind of acting, right? We're all we're all uh, – we all have imposter syndrome, but some people are just better at hiding it or or maybe they are just genuinely more confident.
1: It's it's funny you say that because when I got very senior, three and four star, and I would be in the halls of power in the White House or something, and you'd see some of these people who walked around like they'd been there all their lives and they, they just seemed so self-confident. Mm. Here I am very senior and experienced and I'm feeling heavily the imposter syndrome. And then over time, I started to learn a lot of what they were saying was just absolute foolishness. Yeah, yeah. But they were good at it.
0: Yeah. I mean, but I think I have this theory, General Crystal, that people who who have self-doubt and who actually experience imposter syndrome are better leaders because they're constantly questioning and digging and trying to figure out whether they're doing the right thing and whether – they're operating at their peak capacity.
1: I think that's true. I think it makes you push yourself harder. I think it makes you, uh, it can cause you to doubt some things about yourself and make you uncomfortable at times, but if it makes you think about it more, if if you are not so supremely self-confident that you are dismissive of what other people think or doubts, I, I think it makes you a better leader. Aaron well, a um, Part
0: of that quote that I read earlier, um, there's a, a second part of that quote, which is that um, you you talk about how as you are kind of learning the, to be the type of leader that you hoped to be, and there were times where you would give um, conflicting messages, right, um, that, that you weren't always consistent with how you no. handled subordinates um, or how you um, kind of d- developed plans of action, Um how did how were you able to
1: recognize that? Well, it's a, it's a great point. I think at the end of the day, it's a uh, it's a shortcoming in maturity and self discipline because I would go through moments when I would either be frustrated or insecure, and so I would be very directive, and I would be almost textbook hard ass, and mm. I would you know boom boom boom, yep. and then and then the next minute or the next day. You know, I would be the person wanting to hear what they have to say and take their inputs. And the problem with that is you could be one or the other, and that's probably okay. But when you're not consistent, it's really hard on subordinates because it's hard for them to deal with the Monday Stan McChrystal okay. and then run into the Wednesday, Wednesday Stan McChrystal, heaven be different. And I think the older you get, at least in my case, the older I got, the more mature I got. More I learned what worked. I I was less pendular in my changes of uh, mood and style, but but it never completely goes away. Mm-hmm. Even when I got very senior, there are times you get frustrated you might lapse into something that you're you're actually disappointed with pretty soon after. Was there a turning point? Was there a moment because I am I'm, I'm just really interested in how you
0: were able to be so self-reflective even then, right? <laughs> Cuz you had to show confidence and you and and you would sort of fluctuate between being a, as you say a hard ass and then wanting input and but knowing inside that that there was something that wasn't working with your leadership style. Was it was there somebody who helped you see that? Was there a conversation you had or an experience you had that really kind of shook you and forced you to be so reflective?
1: Um, There were several. There was no single moment. I had a battalion commander when I was a company commander the first time, a mechanized battalion commander who was just incredibly competent. uh, But he broke all the rules in terms of how you're supposed to look. He was a little bit pudgy. He smoked constantly. Mm -hmm. When we had the opportunity, he drank. Um, He used sarcasm in dealing with troops and all, and, and that's usually not a good idea. But it worked beautifully because he cared, and he was able to communicate that, and he was supremely competent, and he made us better. So he was the kind of leader that sort of knocked your airs off. I remember once I got a letter of uh, commendation from the division commander, a two-star general. I was a captain and that's a big deal. Hmm. So this letter comes down through battalion headquarters and it's coming down to me. And this is the kind of thing that you take home and show your wife and you might even frame it or something. But he took a magic marker on and, and wrote, this is BS you know, I think your company sucks. And it's a joke. It's a joke. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but this is on my letter of commendation, you know? <laughs> and he knows it's funny. Yeah. But in the moment, I'm thinking, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a reminder not to take myself t- too seriously. Mm. Um, it's those kinds of things that that help you uh, start to dial in what you really think about yourself and what kind of leader you want to be.
0: 9-11 was a huge turning point for so many um, military officers like you who had graduated from West Point in the, in the mid to late 70s um, because all of a sudden you guys were the leaders. This was now your army, um, and you would eventually take on the command of the JSOC, the, the Joint Special Operations Command. Um, and for people who don't don't know what that was, I mean essentially this was like the military's main counterterrorism force like you you basically starting in 2003 were living between Afghanistan Qatar Iraq I'll probably on the road all the time all all over in places that you probably still can't talk about
1: it was a little bit surreal because I was a brigadier general one-star general on 9-11 and I remember the attack occurred and I'd been in joined Special Operations Command before, JSOC. So I was very aware of terrorism and counterterrorism. But I was at the 18th Airborne Corps as the Corps Chief of Staff at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, when it occurred. The first few months were a little bit uh, difficult to get our minds around because I don't know if you remember, there was all the the hubbub about there'll be follow-on attacks in the U.S. So we were sending military forces all over the place to protect everything. And, and so my memories of the first six months are sort of a lot of idiocy. Meanwhile, a small number of forces went to Afghanistan and toppled the Taliban government and pushed out uh, al-Qaeda. It wasn't until about a year later that I started to realize that this was going to truly be a long struggle. The, okay. There was going to be a long struggle against al-Qaeda. And I got rumblings about planning for an invasion of Iraq. And it probably wasn't until 2003 when I became the commander of Joint Special Operations Command that I suddenly realized that myself and my peers, and I'm referring to some officers just a few years senior to me and a few years younger, we were going to wage this war. We were going to run it. And that's a different thought to consider. I had grown up studying Eisenhower's lieutenants, Lee and his lieutenants, and all the, the senior officers that that fought in these very memorable conflicts, and suddenly it was us. Huh. And you'd, you'd sit around a table, and you'd look at all these people, and they're three stars and four stars, and you'd go, wait a minute, I knew that guy's a lieutenant. He's a knucklehead. Huh. Or, you know, or the equivalent, you say, what am I doing here? You know. We need Eisenhower, Patton, Bradley, and instead we got us. And then you realize that those were just normal people who had to rise to the occasion. And it was really interesting to watch my peers rise to the occasion. Hmm. Some did magnificently and some were disappointments
0: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. This is now uh, the most consequential thing that you have done in your life, that you will have done in your life up to that point, running JSOC and really doing – taking some huge risks and – um, making some very profound and consequential decisions, some of which, b- by their nature, would would be mistakes, and some would be successes. Um, but there were also there were also setbacks. I mean, there was a the the Ranger incident, friendly fire incident that killed Pat Tillman, right? Um, that his mother wrote about in a book and and said there was a cover up, and and a lot of people agree with her. Um, there was a detainee abuse and torture and things like that 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 Mm -hmm. happened under your watch i want to i want to sort of ask you about that time period because there are a lot of things obviously to be proud of as a leader but what 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 about the things that that are are harder are more challenging to kind of look back at and say you know this is on you know this is part of uh, part of my time there this happened or that happened and um are there are there things you could have done differently or ways you would have thought about about leadership differently that would have changed those things, or was it just circumstance that kind of created those those
1: situations no i I mean circumstance is part of it, but you hopefully learn from those experiences. I can describe through my experience but but you could also extrapolate this a little bit for all of our forces, I think. We, went, we were a very professional military after 9-11, or on 9-11, but, but we weren't ready for that kind of war. We weren't ready for Afghanistan, and we weren't ready for what we found in Iraq. When I took command of Joint Special Operations Command, I had grown up in JSOC, but the reality was JSOC was designed for periodic, very elegantly precise operations, but not very often. Mm. We had a a complex environment that we hadn't really thought about. We had detainees. Hmm. We had a breadth of operations going on all the time that suddenly dealing in the murky world of intelligence gathering. We were dealing with agents. We were dealing with foreign governments. And you'd read about this stuff and you knew theoretically about it, but we as an army, and me as a leader, had never really touched that before. And so, when I explain to people, they go, well, why weren't you good at it? And I said, well, we hadn't done it.
0: Mm. You were the commander of U.S. NATO forces in Afghanistan, and um, there's a, a profile of your time there, and there's a remarkable scene in that profile where um, mm-hmm. you go out to meet with a group of soldiers in some remote part of Afghanistan, and you are there to... You know, kind of give them a pep talk, and um, you know, but but you're very candid and you're very raw and honest with them, and and uh, there's a lot of pushback. A lot of these like kids are just saying, you know, hey, why why aren't we able to do this, or why are the rules of engagement so so strict? And you know, you want us to do X, Y, and Z, but you're not you're not letting us do it, and and you're kind of just, I mean, you're a four star general at this point, and listening to these kids kind of lay into you, and I, I thought that was pretty. Remarkable. Um, when when things like that happened, um, I don't know. Would it? Would you? Did that have an impact on the way you actually made decisions and thought about your decisions?
1: Well, it it has to, and and I probably ought to give the context for that particular situation because what had happened was probably a, about a month earlier. I'd gotten an email from a sergeant in that company in a place called Argandab. Afghanistan, and it was amazing. Here's a, a staff sergeant writing the four star commander and saying, "Sir, I respect you, but I don't think you know what's going on down yeah. <laughs> And, and
0: that's so a, that's I, a that's a brave guy yeah. there.
1: So i I got on a helicopter the next day, went down, and spent all day walking a patrol with his squad. And it was the damnedest area you ever saw because it was grapevines, but because the Afghans didn't have wood for arbors, they used mud. And so it created this oversized corduroy about seven feet high on either side. And you had to patrol inside this maze of uh, passageways, which is very, very dangerous. And and uh, this was a very contested area. So we went all day and did that. and We came back and then I flew back to Kabul. And then about a month later, I got a note that said... The, the sergeant, his primary subordinate of the guy who'd written me the email had been killed in the same area. So I flew back down and I went on a combat patrol with them again. And then the scene you just described was at the end of that day, we came back and we got around this area outside their little hooch where they were living. And I said, okay, you know, what do you got? They were operating in an area that was incredibly frustrating because trying to wrest control of this area that was physically, the terrain was difficult to describe, you know, unless you've seen it. And there was a sense that they were putting their hand in a bucket of water every time they pulled their hand out. Of course, you know, that the enemy would reclaim the area. So you could understand that what they felt, it was a pointless risk. So... All you can do at that point is try to explain to them, open your own ears so that you're hearing, so you don't assume that I got it right, they got it wrong, but I'd been on the ground with them, so I knew a lot of what they said was was correct. Um, and, and take it in. Um, you know, That's what commanders have to do. I think it's what CEOs and presidents got to do. They got to listen to people who have a different perspective, and they don't always have to agree with it, but they have to respect it. When you um, – there was – and, and
0: this is leading to this question, which is there was um, there was a famous profile. I've even asked about this. A, a lot of times you've addressed this and written it. And, and I reread that profile. I read it several times in Rolling Stone called The Runway General by a reporter named Michael Hastings who um, sadly is no longer alive. Um, and I have to say rereading that profile, I really genuinely came away with a belief that that reporter actually – had a lot of admiration for you. I don't know if that was your read, but that really was part of my read. That actually, there was a lot of nuance in that article, um, explaining context about why certain things had to happen and why certain decisions had to be made. Um, but of course, that article led to your resignation um, because um, it was a it was a lot of sort of out, out, uproar about it, and and. Um, yeah. And you stepped down and you resigned from the army um and you kind of went went quiet for a while you didn't you you didn't want to respond to the article or you didn't want to kind of go out on the defensive you just kind of you just kind of went quiet and 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 said nothing um was that it was that i mean first of all, that must have been hard, but second of all was that a deliberate decision that you took
1: yes, it was um the article, you know, when Michael Hastings was with us and he was embedded with us for several short periods, not for a long period, um, whenever he was around, he was, you know, just incredibly nice and and uh, almost sycophatic. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, and I, I didn't think much of the article because we had a number of reporters doing a version of sure. that. Um, but my wife— uh, we were in Paris and my wife, he was around because we were there briefing the, the leadership of the French leader, yeah. uh, government. And my wife says, has anybody checked this guy out? And I said, well, I assume my team did. And she says, have they read his book? And I said, what book? My wife is, you know, she's this kind of person. He, he had lost a, a girl that yes. he loved in Iraq. Yes. Um, and shes he had done a pretty painful a uh, book about the soldiers he'd been with there. She said, I think you better be prepared that that he is not what you think he is. I said, all right, well, whatever. That was about two months before the actual article came out. Mm-hmm. When the article came out, of course, as soon as I read it, I knew it was going to be you know, a huge controversy because it hit at a sensitive moment of civil-military relations. Yeah. There was a perception. Now, I always got along with President Obama and his team. Uh, still do. Um, but but it created this perception that the military either didn't respect him or, or whatever. I didn't think the article was a fair portrayal, but in the moment, there's nothing to do about it. Um, it was not... It's my job not to pass problems on to my commander-in-chief. Yeah. And yet, this article was. So, your question about going quiet... Um, I made the decision that what I could have done was I could have fought it. I could have said, this is unfair. I want investigation, this, this, this. But, but that would have been really bad for the mission. And it would have put the president in a very difficult position of sort of, there'd be a certain number of people in the U.S. who would back the general and, and whatnot. And so I didn't think that was something I should do. So I decided to go quiet and just focus myself on being the kind of leader that I think I am, and letting people who might doubt me because of the article look at my conduct after that and judge me on that. I didn't see any value in relitigating something uh, like that. And I'm, and I'm happy with that. I'm comfortable with that decision.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you, um, when you stepped down, this was like, I mean, everything you had known. Your whole identity was yeah. being in a the, in the uniform. Was being in in the army and being in that system. First of all, that must have been extremely disorienting
1: to step out of that world so quickly. On several levels, um, I've described this before to people, but I walked out of the Oval Office having offered and had the president accept my resignation, and you're in shock. Yeah. And I had been gone. And so I'd just flown in overnight and I went back to my quarters at Fort McNair and my whole world was gone. Hmm. And I walked in the house and my wife is standing in the, the foyer and I said, it's over. I've just resigned. And she said, good. Hmm. We've always been happy and we will always be happy. And, and I remember at that moment how strong that was because she'd grown up in an Army family. Everything she'd always done had been had been in that with her father or with me. Mm. And so I had taken her world away. In an instant, she's not an Army officer's wife. And now suddenly, I'm not a soldier. So it was incredibly disorienting. You, you, you go through self-doubt. And then the second level is... I felt like it failed. I wasn't just out of the army. I was now on the ticker tape of the TV every two minutes and some places are calling it, disgrace general. I've got people opining about it who didn't know any of the facts saying, you know, McChrystal had to go. And I felt like I'd let down all the people who had depended upon me, all the people who'd gone to Afghanistan with me, all the Afghans for whom uh, some had said, this is our best chance and I felt like everything that I had promised or implied that I would try to do I'm just walking away from maybe not in you know uh, of my own accord but I was and then there's my father who was I think 86 at the time and I was afraid he was going to be ashamed of me and disappointed for me uh. my son was just finished college and you know, suddenly your father's on TV every minute in a bad way, and and you so you you have this incredible feeling of guilt um, that you're not what people want or need you to be. It's almost as if that was a gift
0: that had to happen in order for you to kind of grow into the next
1: phase of of your leadership journey. I, I, Guy, I agree with you. I. Uh, I would not have had this phase of my life had that not happened. Um, I'm not sure I would have been quite as self-reflective as I think I am now. Um, So it didn't feel like a gift in the moment, but in retrospect, it really was. You have since then
0: um, created a very successful consultancy, and and I know you're doing a lot of work around pandemics and their cities like Boston that have actually brought you you and your team in to help them um um and and have written several books about leadership um and I want I want to kind of focus in on on one of the books that came out a couple years ago where you you identified 15 I think it's 15 or 13 leaders 13 uh, 13 leaders um and there's some really just I mean people look at the table comp, contents of this book they're going to you know freak out because some some are obvious and I want to ask about them like Martin Luther King but some Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the guy that you 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 oversaw his his um, his killing, um, he he was a notorious terrorist leader, Al Qaeda in Iraq. Um, talk to me about Zarqawi as a leader.
1: Yeah, he was actually a very good leader, and I I sort of grudgingly admit I probably learned as much leadership from him as I did from anyone else in my life. Wow, Zarqawi had grown up in a tough industrial town and in uh, Jordan, and he had gotten religion when he was in the latter years of high school, become more fundamentalist, and he'd gone off to Afghanistan to fight against the Russians, but they were pulling out, so he fought against the, the remnant Afghan government, and he became more and more focused on radical Islam, we'd call it. He wasn't well educated, and he wasn't well educated religiously, but what he learned was He could sort of, by force of will, make himself into this charismatic terrorist leader by being the most pious person, the most unbending believer. And as a consequence, people were drawn to him. Now, he wasn't a chest thumper. He was sort of quiet the way he did it. He very much did leadership by example. And he also kept his organization very, very focused, although I abhorred what they were doing, the tactics that they used. You had to admire that he created an organization built upon a belief in a certain ideology, and he kept the organization focused on it. So I could say that he was a bad person. But on the other hand, I'd have to say that had he been on my team, I've probably been happy to have somebody with that level of focus, commitment, and self-discipline.
0: I mean it's amazing because we, we've seen this throughout history that, that leaders who have uh, – who are able to kind of rally their, their supporters by using anger, right? By using anger or in his case, um, you know, just – I mean from his perspective, it was probably seen as a just cause, but it was, it was motivated by, by anger, and by a sense of, of injustice among his supporters, um, whether right or wrong, um, that is a can be a very effective tool. But a, but I also think it's a short-term, right? It's a, it's a very kind of
1: short-sighted
0: way of rallying people.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, we call it – I used to call it cheap leadership tricks and I would warn junior leaders in the military that – the best, the quickest way they could get the team to coalesce around them was to vilify their higher headquarters, mm-hmm. say the people above us are bad or the people yeah. on their left or right. But it doesn't last because once your supporters find out that the people above aren't villains, then your credibility wears thin. Zarqawi, he and we linked him with Maximilien de Robespierre of the uh, French Revolution. True, yeah. Were, what we called zealots. And they were so fanatical about their cause and they were so unbending and they were so focused that they burned like white hot. And that became very alluring to people because you see a leader like that and you go, wow, if they are so committed and so uh, ideologically fanatical about it, maybe there's something to it. It's pretty amazing. Um, something you've, you've heard about um you know when you because you're
0: often asked look, what are the qualities to make a good leader whether it's a corporate leader or the leader of a nonprofit or or even a small business leader somebody running their own Etsy shop right and and one of the things that, y- that you've said is the best leaders i've seen have an uncanny ability to understand empathize and communicate with those they lead now my question is what happens if you don't have that skill naturally if it doesn't come to you easily how do you How do you develop the ability to empathize and understand and communicate with the people you lead?
1: Yeah. I think if you don't care, and that's a slightly different thing, that it's hard to fake that over time. Uh, If you lack the ability to connect with people, some people are introverted or awkward and it's Mm. difficult to do that. I think the best way to do it is to find people who can help you do that. Almost find connectors uh, you see some great leaders surround themselves. Franklin Roosevelt had Eleanor Roosevelt, but he always had, he had uh, uh, a number of aides, Stimson Howe and others that that were linkages for him. And he didn't have the problem of empathy, but, but if you can find people around who can help translate things for you, some people hear information better from a few familiar sources than they do from a wide group. Mm. And if you can find people that can go out in the military, units have a command sergeant major. And the command sergeant major is the senior enlisted soldier in the battalion of great power. But they also typically have this extraordinary ability to go down, sense the unit, and translate that to the commander. And if you've got the right relationship with your command sergeant major, you get an understanding of what's happening that it's very hard to maintain otherwise. Mom
2: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: How do you um sort of know when you are leading? How do you make sure that you are growing as a leader? Right, you, you lead a team, and you, you lead... Uh, a, a very successful consulting firm now you led huge operations in the military and sometimes there can be you know you can put, find yourself in a situation where um, you know everyone thinks that you're great and I mean you experience this when you're a four star general you're wearing four stars on your shoulder and everyone who passes by salutes and you know kind of defers and and it can very quickly you can find yourself in a position where you don't have enough people or maybe anyone telling you that um, you're not doing it right or that you you, you know how have you been able to kind of make sure that that you've got people who are going to be straight with you and say, "Hey, you know, General or Stan or whatever, this is this is not you're not doing this well. You you need to
1: rethink this." I think this is really important for two reasons. One is there's a natural tendency not to be candid with the boss the more senior you get, and then there's another part as it it lies to the. Uh, imposter syndrome, you get to a high level and you think that if you show that you don't know what you're doing, or if you show any doubt that people won't respect you. I think leaders have got to first communicate that to people. They've got to be open enough, vulnerable vulnerable enough to tell people what they don't know. The second part is get people around you that you very much trust and they aren't the people who necessarily agree with you, but they are people who can tell you when, what you're wearing looks stupid, what you said didn't make sense. And it, it takes a leader to find those people, to support them, to retain them over time.
0: General McChrystal, I'm personally I am very worried, and I'm open about this. I don't care, and I don't want to put you in an awkward position. But I'm very worried about the leadership that we're seeing. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it and say from Washington or from our elected officials, from the White House. It's just, uh, you know, I know some people like it, and some people feel like it's authentic and um, and real, and and it's you know no nonsense, unlike previous presidents. But um, I find it to be very very disturbing, and um, and and I in part because I always grew up uh, believing that the that that we learn about leadership from the White House, from the person occupying that the the, the role. Um and I, I wonder, do you I mean, when when you think about, you know, some of our elected leaders, um know, are you worried about about the message that they send about leadership, that leadership is about being the toughest or the you know the the loudest voice or the biggest bully i mean i I'm worried about it I just I, I worry that we're we're going back we're regressing you know we're we're sort of on this trajectory where the kinds of leaders that people pointed to were collaborative leaders, leaders that left a legacy behind and that created a sustainable work environment that outlasted them, companies that didn't need them, right the best leaders are the ones who make themselves obsolete um now we're seems like we're re, we're entering we're going backwards, you know, like, and
1: I'm, do you you agree? Um, I do. Uh, What I would say is when I think about this, I I take a step back and I say, well, what would I like to see in a leader at that level? And what I'd like to see in a leader at that level is someone who is not about ego, but about what they are doing for the, for the nation and for, for all Americans. I'd like to see, an individual who is very uh, value based starting with integrity and is willing to say things that are absolutely true to back them up. If the truth changes, be honest with us and tell, tell us that the truth has changed and they're changing. I'd like to see someone who is respectful because I think respect is contagious. Even if you disagree with someone or something that someone says, if you may maintain a level of respectfulness, it gets easier to work together. Mm. And, and i like to see someone who accepts responsibility. All of those things, to me, wrap up into a leader who makes everyone else around them better. I think the best measure of whether we've got it right or wrong is how do the people in concentric rings away from the senior leader conduct themselves? If they're not conducting themselves very well, usually it's because the tone at the top went the wrong way. And, and I think we really need to ask ourselves those hard questions, because who we elect as a president or or other key jobs, if if we're not satisfied that we've elected the right character in the individual, then we're almost never going to get the right outcome. Do you do you think that um,
0: leaders are? generally born that way, or do you, do you think that they become leaders?
1: I think leaders are made, not born. I've, I've thought about this for a long time. I think you are born with certain qualities and certain uh, skill, or not skills, but uh, gifts like level of intelligence or charisma, that sort of thing. But I think almost all leadership is learned, and it's learned by watching good leaders and watching bad leaders. It's learned by practice and it is reinforced by something I've talked about before, self-discipline. Most of us know what good leadership is not everybody but most of us do we could we could pass a test on what a good leader would do and how they would conduct themselves. The difference is who's willing to go to the uh, to the links that's required forcing yourself to do the right thing when sometimes the easier thing is more convenient or easier.
0: That's General Stanley McChrystal, founder of the McChrystal Group, a crisis management and consulting firm. Recently, the group was brought on by the city of Boston to help with their coronavirus response. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions.